Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. When you hear the word authority, what kind of feelings or thoughts does that conjure up in you? Are they positive or are they negative? I think for most people, when we are confronted with some sort of authority, whether that's a person or maybe it's some sort of a warning sign, our natural tendency is something rises up in us that wants to push against it. Somebody tells me that I can't do something, well, something rises up in me that wants to do it. I remember visiting England and they have these beautiful manicured lawns. And you just are like invited, like it just, I just want to go on that lawn, but everywhere there are these signs that say, please don't step on the grass. And something just rose up in me, like I really want to step on the grass. Is anybody watching this? This is beautiful grass. Somebody tells me I can't have something, even though I never wanted it before, I never even thought of it before, now I want it. As parents, we see this pushback against authority begin right about the age of two or three, when our sweet little innocent babies learn that awful word, no, and life changes. The struggle for power, the struggle for authority begins. Of course, if we're honest, it never really ends, does it? It's not really just a two or three-year-old thing. This struggle for power, this pushback against authority continues all through our lives. This morning, as we continue as a church family to make our way through the Gospel of Luke in a series we have called The Life of Christ, we're going to be talking all about this idea of authority. Now, if you were here last weekend, you know that we gathered on that weekend. Christians all over the world gather to remember the crucifixion and to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in order to do that, we skipped ahead in our little series in Luke, which makes sense. But now we're going to go back in time a little bit. Two weeks ago, we looked at a passage in Luke 19 where Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a colt. And the people are going crazy on the streets, right? We, we uh, celebrate this as Palm Sunday. Jesus entering in, people declaring Hosanna, declaring him as king. And so that's where we left off two weeks ago. So we're going to go back in time. We're going to pick up our story in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 45. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can certainly grab one of the black Bibles in the seat in front of you or around you there. We'd love for you to do that, in fact. And you can find this story on page 733 of those black Bibles. If you're still getting used to where things are in your own Bible, uh, Luke is about three quarters of the way back. You come to Matthew, Mark, and then there's Luke right before John. Now we're going to do something a little bit different. If you're a regular part of Cherry Hills, I'm going to read our text all the way through chapter 20, verse 8 this morning, and then we're going to come back and unpack it. But here's what I'm going to ask from you, because we are talking about authority this morning. And because we believe our authority as a church is God's word, I'm going to ask if we could stand together as we read this text. So I invite you to do that. And again, I remind you where we are, Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem. The people are celebrating, and this is the first thing that he does. So Luke 19, verse 45 says, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in reverence of you and your word. Now we ask that you would speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, going into this week, I got to say to you, I thought this was going to be a pretty cut and dry message. And then I got into a little bit more and I realized I have bit off way more than I could possibly have chewed. So basically, I'm just saying, buckle your seatbelts and get ready. The New Testament starts with four accounts of Jesus' life. They are referred to as the Gospels. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of these accounts gives sort of a different angle of Jesus' life and ministry. But every once in a while, there is an event in Jesus' life that is recorded in all four of those Gospels. And so whenever that happens... You know, our eyes should kind of get wide. Our ears should perk up. There's something significant about this event event that they want us to know. It's why all four of them tell us. And this story of the cleansing of the temple is one of them. Now, Luke's version of the story doesn't give us a ton of details. But when you put the other accounts together, we actually get quite a bit of details of this account. We're told in other gospels that Jesus makes a whip out of courts. He is violently throwing over money changers' tables. He's throwing over animal sellers' tables. He's yelling. This is the only recorded act of violence done by Jesus. And for those of us who read it, sometimes we come to this passage and we're like, this is so out of character. We tend to think of Jesus as gentle and mild, but here he is violently kicking people out of the temple. And so that, of course, leads to the question, like, why? Why is Jesus so angry that he's doing this? He's acting this way? Well, I thought about it this week, and to really understand that, we're going to have to do a little bit of a history lesson. Are you okay with that? We need to understand what the temple meant to the people in Jesus' day. And to do that, we have to go back to the Old Testament. The temple that's spoken of here, of course, no longer exists. It was destroyed in 70 AD. And so I don't know what you think of when you picture the temple. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you see the temple all over the place. I don't know what you picture. Maybe you picture a big cathedral or maybe a synagogue or maybe a church building where people would come and hold services just like we're doing right now. But that's not the idea of the temple in the Old Testament. The temple was much bigger than simply a place to hold services and for people to gather and worship. You see, as a, we're going to see in a minute here, the reason you even had these money changers, the reason you even had these um, animal sellers, 
because a Jewish person living in this time, no matter where you lived in the world, had to come back to the temple three times a year because there were two things that happened at the temple that could happen nowhere else. What are those two things? I'm gonna talk about those two things. You notice I've left a little bit of space in this section if you like to use notes, and the reason for that is I hope you can take some of your own notes. It's not just about filling in the blanks. So first... The temple was where you met face to face with God. What's the first purpose of the temple? Well, it was the place that you met with God. The Old Testament puts it this way. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. That's hard for us uh, to kind of comprehend. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 84.1. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. What dwelling place? What is the psalmist talking about? Well, he's talking about the temple. That is the place where we're told that God's glory actually dwelt specifically. As you read the Old Testament, we're told that his glory dwelt in this place called the Holy of Holies. It was like the inner room of the temple and nobody was allowed to go into this room except one person and that was only one time a year. That was the high priest. Somebody set, reads this and they go, well, this doesn't make sense to me. I thought God was present everywhere. What's this idea that God's presence is in the temple? Is God present everywhere? Absolutely, yes, but... When you read the Old Testament, when God called the people to himself, when he called the Jewish people to himself, he made some promises to them. And one of the promises he told them is that he would dwell with them in a certain place. At first, that place was called the tabernacle. And then later, when King Solomon comes on the stage, he builds this permanent place called the temple. So what that means is the temple, if you were living in this day, that's the place where you went to worship God. That's where you went to encounter God because that's where God's presence was. It's called his Shekinah glory. It dwelt in the middle of the temple in the Holy of Holies. So that's the first thing we have to understand about the temple. What makes it unique is that's where God's presence dwelt. So the temple was the place where you would go in order to meet with God or at least get near to God's presence. Second, the temple was the place of sacrifice for sin. It's not just the place where you came to meet with God, but actually it's because it's the place where you came to meet with God that it was also the place of sacrifice. That's why we have this issue in our text of the selling of animals. It was the place where sacrifices for sin were made. Sacrifices of blood to atone for sin. Here's why. The temple represents the teaching of the whole Bible, which says you and I, because of our sin, cannot approach God in any old way. We can't just go into God's holy presence. Yes, it was the place we would come to meet God, but we could not go into the holy of holy places because of our sin. Because God is holy, we don't understand what that word means, I don't think anymore, like completely other. Totally without sin, without blemish, because God is holy and infinite, and because we are sinful and finite, we had to have a way to deal with our sin in order to be in God's presence. We see this immediately in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sin, what does God have to do? He casts them out from the garden. They can no longer share the kind of fellowship God hoped to share with us as humanity because he is a holy God and we are sinful people. But here's the good news. 
in God's grace and in his provision, he created this sacrificial system. And that's what the temple really is all about. In the book of Exodus, the Jews are given as they are released from slavery by God. They're brought to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai. They're given a number of things. They're given the law and they're given the sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system basically means if you want to approach my presence, which I promise will dwell in this tabernacle, there must be a payment. The payment became an animal sacrifice. This gets confusing to us today in 21st century, doesn't it? Why did there need to be an animal sacrifice? Well, Hebrews 9.22 tells us one reason, which is this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So there needed to be some shedding of blood for forgiveness. But the second reason is what Paul relates to in Romans 6.23. He wants us to understand that the wages of sin, the wages of our sin is what? Death. And so every time I would bring a sacrifice, I would understand that. The wages of my sin is death. What this animal is getting is what I deserve. There's a consequence to my rebellion against God. I can't just flippantly enter into a holy God's presence and act like everything's fine. Some people wonder, well, why can't just God like look over our sin? Why can't he just get past it? Tim Keller uses an illustration I think you might find helpful. I'm gonna read it. He writes, let's just say you have adopted an orphan girl as a little child and you've raised her up. You know it's a lot of work to raise a child. There is a tremendous cost. You just put your whole life into it. As she got to the age of college, you give her your life savings to go off to college with. Everything you've ever earned will get get her through college. So off she goes, but she disappears. She leaves. She never shows up at college. She draws all the money out of the bank, and then she just goes off. You discover over the next few months by various sources, she has gone off into another city where she is living the high life. She's living irresponsibly and she's spending all the money on an unbelievable number of luxuries and frivolous things and she's squandering that money you saved your whole life away. Now what would happen if a year or so later she shows up, she just walks back into your house, she sits down and starts chatting as if everything's fine. Hey, how are you doing? Long time no see. It's been a little while. What's going on? As if nothing happened. What would you say? You'd say, whoa. Whoa, wait a minute. We can't just act as if nothing is wrong, as if nothing has happened. We have to talk about what you've done. You have to talk about that. We have to deal with the breach that has been caused between us now. You have to deal with the betrayal, with the injustice of it all. What is she gonna say? She might say, well, you're being awfully cranky about this. No, I'm not being cranky. I love you, and I've loved you, and I still love you, and as a result of my love, you understand we have to do something about the breach here. You just can't come back in any old way. You can't approach me casually as if nothing's happened. Something has to be done about what has been broken between us if we can have a restored relationship. Now, we all understand that, I think. We all understand, like, yeah, we would need to have that conversation. Now, I just need you to multiply that exponentially. When we think about our rebellion, our sin against God, when we consider what we have done to him, sin has broken the possibility of relationship. It has caused a breach. But 
The good news is that's why God set up the sacrificial system. But here's the thing. While the sacrificial system was positive, there was also some negative things about it. Let's first talk about the positives. If you're on your note, the sacrificial system is positive, the book of Hebrews tells us, because, I've already mentioned this, it has showed us that we can't just approach God any old way. It shows us just how devastating our sin is. It shows us the breach that has been caused between us that needs to be dealt with in some way. I'll add another positive about it is it shows us that God was willing to provide a way to bridge that gap. On the other hand, if you look at it, the sacrificial system has some negatives as well. Negative because it is partial. Partial and temporary. Partial and temporary. Partial in this sense. Look at Hebrews 9.9 on the screen with me. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered, here's the key, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. So in other words, you bring the sacrifice, but it was never really able to cleanse your conscience. It was just kind of partial. And then on the other hand, it was also simply just kind of temporary. Read Hebrews 10, 11 on your notes with me out loud there. It says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Did you catch it? Day after day, again and again, sacrifices had to be made. Why? Well, I know myself well enough. Do you? Sin isn't just a one-time thing in my life. I need sacrifices again and again for the sin that I commit, the rebellion, the breach that I have caused between me and God. And so listen, the temple, that was the place where we met God. And it was also the place of sacrifice for sin. Now I want to bring it back to our story this morning because the temple was incomplete. Then one day Jesus shows up. And he rides into Jerusalem as king. And the first thing he does is he steps foot inside of this temple and he begins to act like he owns the place. Like he's the authority figure around here. Like he's the one in control. So that led me to ask the next natural question, like what's going on here? What's the deal with Jesus cleansing the temple in this way? And does this have any significance for us still today? I'd argue for the rest of our time this morning, there are three huge things going on here. Huge. And they're related to what we just talked about, uh, about the purpose of the temple. And there are three applications as a result of these three things. So let's spend the rest of our time looking at these. So the first thing that's going on here, the first reason Jesus cleanses the temple, if you're on your notes, is that Jesus restores its primary purpose as a place of worship. Jesus restores its primary purpose, which was what? It was the place where you came to meet with God. It was the place you came to worship God. Would you read Luke 19.46 on your notes out loud with me? It says, it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Why is he so mad? Because people aren't praying. They're not worshiping. They're not encountering God. They're not meeting with God. They're not honoring the purpose of the temple. Why has this happened? 
because we're told that the money changers and the animal sellers have turned it into something other than what it was intended for. So Jesus shows up. He quotes from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, and he reminds the people first what the purpose of the temple was. My house will be a house of prayer. And then he rebukes them for what it has become. It has become a den of thieves. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand here. The services that those money changers and the animal sellers were offering, those were necessary. See, what would happen is if you live, let's say, up in northern Israel, you were required to come to the temple three times a year, you wouldn't want to bring your own sacrifice. That would be horrible, like towing the sheep along with you the whole way. And so they would provide this service. You would get to the temple and you could purchase a sacrifice. But two things began to happen here. Number one, you would have your Greek money and you would have to exchange it for like a temple money. And what happened is they began to charge an exorbitant exchange fee. You've been to an airport, you know what I'm talking about. Then, to make matters even worse, because they knew they had you, they had you trapped, you had to buy a sacrifice. They would charge an enormous fee in order for you to buy that sheep or that goat or that dove. They just began to rip people off. This made Jesus mad, but that's not the thing that made him the most mad. The thing that made him the most mad is this business started happening where? Inside of the temple. Nothing wrong with either of those business if they're done rightly. But should they be happening inside the temple? No, that's not the purpose of the temple. Jesus finds them in the temple, in the place where people should have been praying, where they should have been encountering and worshiping God. If you want to know what it must have been like, I don't know if you've ever been to one of those large outdoor markets, you know, where there's vendors everywhere, crowds, people are yelling and shouting, they're trying to get your attention, crammed lines, crowds, noises. If you've never been to one of those markets, here's what you could just picture for a second. Picture Disney World. Now, I just want you to try to imagine worshiping God there. It would have been so wild, so crazy, so noisy that the only kind of worship you could do is ritual worship. You would go buy your goat, you'd go buy your sheep, you'd buy your dove, and then you'd offer the sacrifice as a ritual, and you'd get out as soon as possible. If you're anything like me, you'd get out as soon as possible. This is what made Jesus mad. Because the temple was never intended to be a place of ritual religion. It was a place for you to come and encounter the living God. A place of prayer, a place of worship. As we've learned in this series in Luke, if you've been with us throughout, Jesus is not interested in your religion. He's interested in a relationship with you, but that's what's been lost here. That's why he's so angry. Now, what does that have to do with us today? Obviously, there is no temple anymore, but is there a lesson here for us? Probably see it already, don't you? What is Jesus saying to us? And I'm talking to some of you who are the most active Christians here. I think he's saying, has your life become like this temple? Unbelievably full of religious busyness, religious activity, but no prayer. No connection, no face-to-face encounter with God anymore. There's a lot of noise, there's a lot of activity, but there's no room in your life for me. 
Jesus shows up at the temple because he says the temple is about worship. It's not about doing the right things or being a nice person. The temple was built so that you could know God, that you could encounter God. Therefore, Jesus says, don't just look at what's happening externally in your life. Look at your heart. Are you making room for me? You see, you can fill your life with all kinds of religious activities. Trust me. I know you can because I do. And I can think, well, that's what Jesus is really after. He's after me coming to church and, you know, reading the Bible and doing my checklist of ritual religion. That's not what he's after. He's after me. He's after my heart. He's after an encounter with me. Is that encounter happening in your life? Do you know God personally? Jesus says, I want to meet with you. The good news is, friends, this is really good news. You don't have to go to the temple anymore to do that. You can do that at any time, anywhere. You simply need to make the space in your life to do it. And so here's the first application of why Jesus cleanses the temple. If you're on your notes, is my life filled with activity or with worship? Do you go through religious motions or do you really clear out the noise and create space in your life, both together with the church, but also privately with him. Second reason Jesus cleanses the temple is because Jesus reveals his authority over the temple. Jesus reveals his authority over the temple. Jesus' cleansing of the temple is so significant. Such a significant story. I told you, I actually just thought like that first application, that's where we would end today. Make space in your life to worship God. But this is so much bigger. This is such a significant event because when Jesus comes on the scene, he's basically saying, I'm the new authority in town. Forget the law. Forget the temple. It's all pointing to me. Now, occasionally you run into people who ask, does Jesus ever really say that he's God in the Bible? And I would say like pretty much almost every page, including here. When Jesus shows up in the temple, does he say, God's house will be a house of prayer? No. What does he say? Look very carefully. Circle it in your Bible. What does he say? My house. My house will be a house of prayer. Then, as only the owner of a house can do, he starts rearranging the furniture. If I came over to your house after church today and I started rearranging the furniture in your house, you'd say what? Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? What gives you the right to come in here and do these things? But isn't that what Jesus is doing? He comes in and acts like he owns the place. Can you believe it? Why? Because he owns the place. He owns the place. This is why I included chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. The people in charge, they understand what Jesus is claiming here. They understand this is all about authority. It's why they trap Jesus with their question, or at least try to. You see, if he answers, yeah, I'm doing this on my own authority, then they will declare him to be a blasphemer. He's claiming to be God. If he says, I have no authority, then they got him trapped too, because then he's a fake. But instead of answering their question, Jesus asks them a question in return. And man, there's some application there for us too, by the way, but I'm going to ignore that for right now. 
Jesus asked them this question, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Now, if you've never thought of Jesus as brilliant, I would hope you would think of him right here as brilliant because what he's basically forcing uh, these religious leaders to decide is, listen, if John's baptism was from heaven, in other words, if it came directly from God, then they would have to agree that all of John's message was pointing to who? Jesus. Well, we're, we're not doing that. The other option is we just deny that John was even a prophet. He was just kind of like a lunatic out in the desert, but the people realized John's message was true. And so if they did that, it says in our scripture that the people would stone them. And so they refuse to answer. Oh, there's so much good stuff here for us. Because that confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders is a confrontation every single person who comes face to face with Jesus will have. What is Jesus saying by cleansing the temple? He's saying, if I am truly the authority figure in your life, then I'm going to come and rearrange the furniture. I'm going to take control. I'm going to come in and I'm going to assume authority. In fact, that's one of the ways you can know that God is in your life. How do you know if you're really a Christian? How do you, how do you know if he's become your authority? You want to know how you know? Because he starts rearranging things in your life. He starts going, ah, that thing over there, that's keeping you. That's keeping you from being a full-hearted follower. Me, Let's get rid of that. This sin right here, I know you want to hang on to it, but friend, we need to get this out of the temple. We need to get this out of your life. I remember when I first came to Christ, I've shared this before, I just had this bad habit of lying. I really wanted to impress people, and so I would exaggerate stories. And when Jesus came into my life, he's like, we're going to have to do something about that, Steve. You can't hold on to that and then claim that I'm the authority figure of your life. And so slowly, painfully, he began to rearrange the furniture. There's so many people I hear today who say, I believe in God, but I also think it's up to me to decide what's right and wrong for me. That's not how it works. When Jesus comes into your life, he assumes the authority. He begins to rearrange the furniture. And I just want to share with you, that's incredibly good news. If you're feeling convicted right now, that's incredibly good news. You know why? Because that means the king is in the house. The king is in the house and he's saying, I want something better for you. I want something better for your life. And so he begins to rearrange the furniture. I was just talking to somebody after the last service and he was saying they hire an interior decorator because they know nothing about style. And yet every once in a while, they'll be like, ah, I'm not gonna do what she just said. And like, that was dumb. We regret it. Every time they do it, they love it. He goes, why am I not like that with God? Exactly. He knows what needs to be moved. He knows what needs to be taken out in order for me to live life to the full. Good news. This is great news. But the flip side is, and the warning of this passage is, you can be like those religious leaders. You can reject the authority of Jesus. He gives every person that decision. 
when I was young, I remember this illustration and I've drawn it myself for you. It's gonna be amazing. You're gonna love it. But it really impacted me. It was a picture of a throne. It's very simple. The throne was like this, the first one. Is that what your life looks like? Yeah, Jesus is a part of my life, but I sit on the throne, I make the decisions. Or is this what your life looks like? Because that's what Jesus is really after. I had somebody ask, can I be a co-chair? That's not how it works. So let me ask you, who is the authority over your life? Be honest about this. Is it Jesus? Or is it me? Not me as in me, but you. (laughs) Who's sitting on the throne? The third thing Jesus is doing here, and this is by far the... The biggest thing probably requires an entire message, but I'm just dumb enough to try to do it in 10 minutes. It's this. Jesus declares that he is now the temple of God. He is now the temple of God. In John chapter 2, which is John's version of this story, notice how Jesus responds to the religious leader's questioning of his authority. It starts in verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? They know what's going on, remember? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Well, if you keep reading, you're like, the people don't get this. Even the disciples don't get this. What are you talking about? You're going to destroy this physical building and then somehow you're going to raise it up again in three days. But we know what he's talking about. What's he talking about? Himself. He's talking about his body. What he's saying remarkably is this temple that we're standing in right now, this is simply a foreshadowing that is pointing to something much bigger, me. How can this be? Well, let's go back to the beginning. What was the point of the temple? What was the purpose? Two things. What? The place to encounter God And the place where sacrifices for sin were made, this is so big right now. We're like, we're doing all the Bible here in the last five minutes. What Jesus is saying, what the entire New Testament is saying is Jesus is God in the flesh. John 1.14 puts it this way. The word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Greek there is he tabernacled among us. God, no longer in a place, but in a person. God's glory and his presence in Jesus, not in a temple. He is the temple. He is the way we now come face to face with God. But not only that, he is also the place of sacrifice for sin. What Jesus is saying at this point is astonishing. It ties in last week so well, right? He walks into the temple and says, I'm going to make this whole thing obsolete. You see, John was right. His message is from heaven. I am the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, not again and again and again, but one time. That's what we just celebrated. Jesus' death 
and his resurrection. You remember what happens on the moment Jesus declares it is finished on the cross? What happens in the temple? The curtain that kept the holy of holies, the place where God's presence was said to dwelt, that kept us from God, was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? Because we can now come into God's presence. Jesus Christ has paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we can now know God face to face. We no longer have to bring our sacrifices to God just to be near to him. We can know him personally and intimately. That is what we call the gospel. It's what we celebrated last week. Praise and glory to Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says this so powerfully in chapter 10, verse 20, by his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain, what curtain? His body, into the most holy place. This means that if you believe Jesus died in your place, good news, you don't have to bring any more sacrifices in order to meet with God. The sacrifice he made for you is good for all time. You can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence at any time, at any place. When you unite with Jesus, who is the temple, check this out. The Bible says you become a part of the temple. We become living stones, we're told. Ephesians 2 tells us we become the body of Christ. We become the temple of the Lord. Now this has so many other ramifications. I told you it needs another message, but here's just one to think about. No longer do you and I have to go to a place to meet God. Now we bring God to people. God's presence, we're told, now dwells in us. So we're like, we bring the temple everywhere. You bring the temple to your neighborhood. You bring the temple to your workplace. You bring the temple to your family. You bring God's presence everywhere you go if you are a part of his body. Now, it's one thing to believe in Jesus in a general way, like, oh, he's such a nice guy. He's got some great teachings. It's another thing to see him as the final temple. The one who replaces the temple. The one who says, through me, you can always be present with God. Through me, your whole life can be changed. That may require some rearranging of furniture, though. Through me, you can know the forgiveness of sin for all time. A lot of people say, I would like that. That sounds good but I don't want to give up control of my life. I don't want somebody coming in and rearranging the furniture. A lot of people say, I'd be happy to be a Christian if I can hold on to this and this and this and this. You're bargaining with God. You're turning your life into a marketplace of buying and selling, of wheeling and dealing. No, no, he says, I will give you everything your heart desires if you give me everything first. That's the deal. He must become, as the title of this message says, the authority figure of your life. So as we close this morning and prepare uh, to worship through song, again, we mentioned we're gonna have an extended time to be able to do that because we just thought, he's pretty awesome. He's pretty amazing. He He deserves whatever worship that I can bring him. Let me close with this question. Have I experienced Christ's presence and sacrifice in my life? Like personally, you don't just know about it. 
but you're actually experiencing his presence. How do you know? Because he's rearranging some furniture. Have you experienced his sacrifice? Are you free like we sang about before? You are forgiven. Have you entered into the temple, which is Jesus Christ? I'm going to ask you to stand right now. And as we prepare our hearts to worship God in song, to worship this Jesus, I'm going to have us read this passage from Colossians 1 out loud together. But before you do that, let me just say to you, if you need to sit at any time during this, if you need to kneel, if you need to come to these steps to kneel, uh, we call this the altar here. If you just need to come down to respond in any way, you're free to do whatever you want. That's part of the good news, isn't it? We can worship God however we want. If your legs are getting tired, sit down. But let's read this as we prepare to sing. Ready? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Praise God.